0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Alphibunga Bunga. It's Thursday, the 11th of March. My name is Alex Kokely. I'm here with Philip Cunliffe and George Horace, per usual. Uh, Today, we're talking about Scotland, a relatively small country in the North Atlantic, Uh, And I'm sure our American listeners, our North American listeners will be very happy to be here talking about Scotland because uh, I guess half of you identify as Scottish or German or whatever the hell you identify as. Um, I guess you guys all love identifying as something that you're not. Like all this chat about being Italian that I see on Twitter and I look at it and it's like there's no Italians in there. They're all U.S. Americans. Um, What's
1: the chatter about being Italian?
0: I don't know, there's all this there's a kind of new joke on Twitter about like, oh, Italians act like this or whatever. Um, and you look at them and they're all just people from New Georg- Jersey New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Pe-
2: <laughs>
0: people Good like accent. the Sopranos. You you promise they,
1: we promised wouldn't do accents. <laughs>
0: they, they want to wear tracksuits like Sopranos characters. Exactly. I mean, I do, so we all do, we all do. Um so you guys are in the UK, of which Scotland is a constituent part. So tell me about Scotland.
1: Yeah, well, so um, we're having this episode because it's the run-up to Scottish elections in May. Um, And though perhaps more importantly, from the international or global point of view, overshadowing these parliamentary elections in May is perhaps the prospect of another referendum on independence. So at the moment... Um, The parliament is part of Britain's system of devolved government, and until recently, it looked like the Scottish Nationalist Party, the SNP, were going to sweep the board, um, until recently. And now it looks, the polls suggest it's more likely to be a hung parliament or perhaps a narrow SNP majority. And we'll get into the reasons for that um, a bit later on in the show. Like I said, I mean, all of this is overshadowed by the possibility of another referendum on Scottish independence. The last one was in 2015. And in that one, 55% of Scots voted to remain part of the UK. And now supporters of Scottish independence, supporters of another referendum say that the changed circumstances of Brexit, Britain's withdrawal from the European Union, demand another referendum on independence because the SNP is strongly pro-European. Scotland as a nation um, voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union. And thus, um, they feel that this motivates and necessitates another referendum, and that if the SNP wins the elections in May, then this will be effectively a mandate for another referendum. So that's the issue um, on the table for this evening. I we're going I, to have some guests I, on as well.
0: And I guess uh, uh, we should be clear that a hung parliament is not a well-endowed parliament, but it's one in which it's divided, in which no one has an overall majority, just to... Clear that up should we call up our yeah, list thank our... you
1: thank you for clearing that up for us <laughs> hey so um hi guys um great to have you on the show um and um i suppose before we get stuck in to talking about um the issues today which is the upcoming scottish elections and the prospects for scottish independence i thought it should be useful in the interest of full disclosure that if um that we have different views on the question um, and that we put our cards on the table. So I don't know, how do you, um, George and I, for instance, are unionists when it comes to the island of Britain, at least I think I'm correct in talking for George as well, which is to say we support maintaining the union of England, Wales, and Scotland, though we believe Ireland should be reunified. Um, though needless to say, however, you know, whether or not the Scottish people want to continue with the union is up to them as it is a basic matter of self-determination. Speaking for myself, I'd prefer if Scotland um, chose to remain in the Union, but as I said, recognize that ultimately that's up to the Scottish voters themselves. What about you, Alex? Where would you stand on it?
0: I mean, you know, on this podcast, of course, we like to be generous and give the colonized a voice, um, not <laughs> uh, trample on marginalized voices. So we're inviting the Scots on. I actually, I'm, I'm fine with Scottish independence. I don't really have any firm opinion on it. If the Scots want to leave, then that's fine. Um, I have a slight distaste for... The union but um that's more just an aesthetic thing than uh than necessarily a political stance so um i'm actually uh willing to be convinced and went over to the scottish independent side
2: what's the what's the nature of your aesthetic uh yeah, disagreement actually with the union? Just terrible flag Bad flag flag, yeah.
0: queen national anthem the worst one i think in the whole world i mean just for starters so you know that and that should be enough
1: these are legitimate these are legitimate criticisms i have to i have to grant you each one of those um Okay, so, um, Kat and David, you guys are Eurosceptic Scottish Socialists, and Euroscepticism is rare on the European left as a whole, and perhaps even more rare among um, supporters of Scottish independence. So could you tell us a bit about why you oppose the European Union?
3: This is David Jameson's favourite topic in the whole world after George Galloway. I'll
4: let let David go first. I... uh, I always struggle to answer this question of, you know, why you oppose the EU. It's a wee bit like, um, why wouldn't you want to step in dog shit? You know, um, I can't can't think of arguments for uh, the European Union. I suppose fundamentally the reason why I was an outspoken Leave voter in 2016, um, to me it was kind of automatic because it's on the basis of democratic principle. The, The European Union... Is anti-democratic. It's not just undemocratic. It's obviously undemocratic, um, but it also directly militates against democracy when it's constituted at a, a nation-state uh, level. Um, it's obviously anti-working class. You know, we could move through an enormous litany of crimes in in the last ten years, but it's anti-working class in a in a fu- fundamental sense, which is that unlike other forms of democracy or political regime. However, limited in their democratic content, the working class had no role in setting up the European Union. It's entirely a, a project of Europe's elite, uh, ruling elites. And, you know, their project over the last 50, 60 years of hollowing out democratic traditions and democratic structures uh, and moving democratic decision making to a level when there's only, where there's only elites in the room. Um, basically, so for me, it was automatic and not uh, a, a difficult question. Um, so yeah, I mean, the twenty sixteen question was easy, and the the Scottish question is just as easy in that in that regard. So I mean, there, for,
3: yeah, go I'm on, I mean, for me, I've always been critical of the EU on the grounds that that David says undemocratic, neoliberal and despite the uh, protestations of some of my more liberal friends, it's racist, it racializes the question of immigration. Um, I mean, as David said, when people vote against the EU, the EU usually tells them to vote again and get it right this time or else. But I also had uh, a first-hand experience of... What the EU's um, economic packages do. I went to Greece um, in the about three years before Syriza were elected. Um, I saw firsthand like how that changed over time, the, the actual like material reality of the EU's austerity packages, what that looked like. And it looked like whole families living on the street trying to sell their fridge freezers and tumble dryers. Like th- that's that's the picture. It was tragic. So I knew that I would never vote in any way that could be seen as an endorsement of the EU. So when 2016 came along, like I knew I was never going to vote Remain. But if I'm being honest, I really hated the Leave campaign. Uh, first of all, I mean, there was pretty much no mobilization for Leave in Scotland. Like I was handed maybe two or three leaflets, tops. Yeah. And um, nobody came to my door to ask about it. Nobody was canvassing. I didn't see, you no know, the, the big, infamous red bus of lies. Um, you know, I, the people I did come across might just have been eccentrics. But the only campaigner I spoke to on the street was a guy giving out leave leaflets who harangued me for 20 minutes about the threat of sub-Saharan Africans. Whilst oh I was No, no, wait, I, like I have criticism of the European Union, too. So he was a bit mad. So when it came down to it, um, I actually ended up abstaining. Um, which was triumph of weak emotional nerve over what I thought intellectually. Um, I was repulsed by the anti-immigrant politics, but I couldn't see any socialist case for staying in the EU, being in the EU. I wish I'd had the courage of my intellectual convictions, to be honest. But I mean, I think that abstaining or even voting to remain is one thing. Um, I know loads of people in Scotland that, that voted to remain who are, are very critical of the European Union, but see it as a buffer against Westminster. I think that that's all one thing and that I can set that to one side. But I think it's another, the way that the broad left across uh, Britain then went about trying to cancel the democratic result for years afterwards. Um, they fell Absolutely. into the trap of doing what the EU did to people. Vote again. You were duped to get it right next time, um, and that was like that was a really sickening thing to watch in in the years after 2016.
1: So both of you then are um, part of the significant minority of Scots who were opposed to the European Union, though the majority of Scots voted to remain in the EU, in contrast to Wales and England, um, both of whom voted to leave as um, nations. So just, to, I mean, it was interesting what you're saying, Kat, about kind of uh, meeting this eccentric lever on the streets. Could could you tell us a little bit about the political breakdown of pro-Brexit Scots? Who were they? Where did they come from in Scotland? You know, who who are they who are these people
3: yeah sure I mean I can tell you exactly exactly that um like none of our politicians apart from maybe one outlier that I can think of um where is that George may- galloway <laughs> is, is george ours <laughs> Let I- <laughs> Hold on. let's be careful around that. <laughs> um Oh, God bless him. Um, Yeah, no, apart from maybe like one outlier, I'm thinking of um, a guy called Oliver Mundell, who's the son of the uh, former uh, Secretary of State Scotland, right? But maybe him. There was a few former politicians, people like Jim Sellers, who was quite notable in his opposition because he had made his an, a name for himself as the architect of the SNP's independence in Europe position when he was a leading member of the SNP and he had completely changed his mind. He was probably one of the, the main mm, pro-independence politicians, but nobody sitting in the Scottish Parliament was in favour of Brexit. So, I mean, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that the Scottish anti-Brexit voters, the Scottish Remain vote was decisive but not totalising, right? So 38% of people in Scotland still voted to leave, right? And that's with no leadership on the Brexit case. So by contrast, every single institution in Scotland, um, trade unions, businesses, media, politicians, everyone is for Remain, right? There's not a single Scottish representative um, who is openly and anti-EU. So I think it's kind of amazing that you still have nearly 40% of people voting to leave. A yeah, third absolutely. of SNP voters voting to leave. And I can totally understand that from outside Scotland, you might get the impression um, that you know we're actually a, a Europhile nation. Um, but that isn't quite true in the popular sense. But it is institutionally. I mean, I can't think of any institution off the top of my head Apart from Conter, obviously, that's that's pro Brexit. Um, our website and podcast, possibly one of the only pro Brexit outlets in the country.
1: Yeah, and, um, <laughs> well, no, absolutely, and so much the better for it. Um,
3: I just wanted to 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 make the point that there's clearly an element of anti-establishment working class votes that were for independence that transferred during the 2016 and it's probably more than the smp would allow you to think so that was
1: that was going to be my follow-up was i mean you know was there like an urban rural divide in terms of how the brexit vote vote went in scotland was there what was the class divide like on the question
3: so you have your i mean you have that kind of the mix of traditional uh, fishing communities there's a chunk of discontented working class And there's some, uh, I'm thinking of like in the borders of Scotland, you know, kind of for quite pro-Brexit there. And it's kind of a mix of that. But like there, there is an element of that disenchanted, discontented, disempowered working class vote. But part of the issue in Scotland was that we had had our populist moment. We had had our moment where there is an expression of working class agency against the establishment and that was against the, 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 the British establishment and probably a British establishment in a more nostalgic sense. So actually, look, an establishment that looks more like the people who are pro-Brexit, in England, yep. like they're more like the picture of the British establishment in Scotland, so when it comes to voting in 2016 there's loads of people who think they're being anti-establishment in Scotland by voting to remain, they think it's a punishment to Westminster because mm-hmm. of the chronology that would that, that would be my argument anyway I, so I to was to actually in-
0: wanting to ask that, sorry no, I just wanted to say that I wanted to ask that question my, myself actually, because that was my impression of it, that the kind of you know, for bit, lack of a better way to put it, the sort of populist revolt, it took the form of Brexit in England and it took the form of Scottish independence in Scotland. Um, I think George and Phil disagreed with my take on that when I was just talking to them, when we were talking just before recording. Um, but I mean, that seems to be my, that was my impression that these things manifested in kind of almost opposite, opposite ways, but um, were part of a similar sort of revolt. Yeah, well, just
3: on that, yeah. Um... They're both revolts in the traditional Labour heartlands. Like the areas of Scotland that voted yes are traditional Labour heartlands, de-industrialised working class, people from an Irish Catholic background like myself. Like this is that's the core labour base in Scotland. Um, and that's that's where the revolt happened, the same way as it did arguably in 2016 in England with Brexit.
1: Yeah.
4: So did- To come in, sorry, a bit on that that class makeup. Um, So, I mean, you need to be careful with Scotland because um, obviously since 62% of people voted Remain, the working class composition of the Remain vote was much higher than, than it was in England. But still, what we know anecdotally, and we don't have a lot of detailed knowledge about who that 38% are because nobody cares. Right? They, they were forgotten about straight away, right? Um, but anecdotally, we do know from vote counters, for example, um, in for example, the East End of Glasgow, that the Leave vote was higher there, just as was the Yes vote. Uh, in fact, this and this is an important p- point to bear in mind, um, the Yes Leave vote, And the uh, uh, no-leave vote were at the same proportion. So uh, by at least one poll, 38% of uh, yes voters were also leave voters. So it corresponded directly to the national average. Uh, And as Kat said, there's a poll that shows a third of SNP voters also voted to leave. Um, I mean, partly because the SNP has... um, It's not always been this Europhile party and because it mobilizes a a popular base, a populist base and a working class base, as well as, you know, those kind of more technocratic, liberal sort of middle class voters.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I thought the the 30 percent of SNP voters who voted for Brexit, it was a fascinating kind of um, group and it would be interesting to know more about them. Um, but let's, I mean, let's move on to talk about the SNP because so both of you guys support Scottish independence as indeed does um, the SNP, Scotland's ruling party at the moment. Um, before we talk about your views on independence though, um, could you give us a brief overview for our listeners all over the world um, about kind of who are the different groups and factions who support independence in Scotland today? Like who are the different types of people who are pro-independence? Um
4: Okay, I think there's two broad class factions, maybe not class factions, two broad tendencies in the independence movement, very broadly, um, that make up even the mainstream of the nationalist movement. And I think this is what is typically obscure from um, people observing from outside of Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon is the image, uh, and before her, Alex Salmond, uh, were the image of Scottish independence. Um, Scotland is... Almost unique, perhaps unique in the Western world, for uniting its kind of middle class liberal technocratic element with a more working class or kind of you know plebeian lower middle class working class uh, populist element. So both of those elements uh, basically combine in, in the in the independence movement. And if we get to talk talking about the infighting in the SNP, that's partly an expression. Uh, of that really strange coalition uh, of uh, of forces. Outside of that, you know, there's there's the traditional national movement, nationalist party, and and kind of nationalist movement, which contains a mad flurry of different ideological tendencies. Some very liberal and kind of europhile and uncritical. Uh, some that hark back to a more kind of social democratic mood. Former Labour people. I mean, a lot of the ranks of the decisive generation of the SNP were former Labour. Um, you know uh, there's also the scottish green party um who again kind of mix together sort of liberal traditions and 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 so on there's a wider kind of diaspora of maybe more radical uh, left-wing positions and, and so forth so there's a real jumble in there of populist social democratic liberal
3: all kinds of stuff um yeah i mean i i sort of see it like this is where I really expose myself as like not being an academic or like I've never done sociology. Right. But like, so I have cartoons in my head about like what these different people represent. Yeah, so probably. I've got my, I've got my anti-establishment, a uh, dissident working class people. Right. Who are like in those labor heartlands and um, they hate Westminster. Like that's, that's their bag. They're, disenchanted disenfranchised and want Britain to break right that's that's them you then you've got your kind of like aspirational PMC uh, grant funded and um, soft liberals for independence very much in the young SNP and the Green Party then you've got your classic tartan Tories which do exist so the people yeah. who maybe own a small business somewhere in Perth Um, You know, maybe like a a delicatessen in Perth or something like that. Um, You know, they're really, uh, they're they're a special type of kind of petty bourgeois nationalist. And then you've got what I like to call uh, the panicked professionals. Now, the panicked professionals are the middle class who hate change and want the status quo. Right. And they are a very new group to the pro-independence fund And what is motivating them has been Brexit, because they don't want Brexit, they want the status quo, they want stable house prices, that's what they want. So I think since 2016, we've seen little creeps in the polls on independence. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there have been polls after poll after poll, which is saying, oh, support's going up, support's going up. It's like it's because of Brexit. and it's it's true. And this is part of the problem is that actually what the SNP have done in power since 2016 is pander. To the profess the, the panicked professionals they've panicked to that section of scott they've pandered to that section of panicked scottish society saying don't worry independence will be a smooth process and um, in that there's a really deranged interview between uh, andrew neil and andrew wilson on the spectator website i don't know if you have just, you've
1: just tell us who they are so our listeners are all on the same page
3: uh, so alex neil uh Alex, sorry, Andrew Neil is the editor of The Spectator and Andrew Wilson is a former MSP um, and he is one of the, he works for Charlotte Street Partners, Scotland's premier lobbying firm, um, but he's also one of the architects of the Growth Commission, which is the SNP's main plan for independence. In this interview, he talks about um, independence being an orderly process and that, I mean, that is a, that's a slogan for mm. those um, kind of middle class, professional, panicked people in Scotland who don't want yeah. change, they don't want Brexit to disrupt, and they think independence can be a smooth process, and that's mm. in massive contradiction to that working class base. Mm. And there's a that's... quote which remains yeah. unattributed to a SNP politician. I wouldn't a- attribute it in public um, because I can't corroborate it. Um, who said? Uh, in 2014 we won the schemes now we have to win the boardrooms and that really tells you about what the SNP have been doing in government since 2016
2: yeah. so that that idea of uh of an orderly process that's classic panic professional speak you can see how that would would appeal um and i think those those i wouldn't say marketing categories because that sounds um derogatory but those kind of portraits are really useful but one group that i i didn't hear about there was was i guess you guys the i mean is this an unfair description a of kind of national socialists um are you guys part of these this strasserite red brown that's, just- that <laughs> no, that's great that's
4: great uh, no I, I keep that in Right? Because uh, <laughs> cause I do
2: occasionally get called a strasserite. So, you know, I need to feed that to my, my real fans. It's um, funny, it's funny that we don't have to explain probably to listeners of this podcast what Strasserite means, but something like hung parliament, we 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 do. Um whereas you would think that those two two terms, one would be more familiar than the other. But um <coughs> and if you don't yeah, know what Strasserite, strasserite people is.
0: Know. I consider yourself lucky. There's no need to know what that means. Don't find out. It's <laughs> <not a laughs> thing. David, I'd, so the Red thing. Yeah.
1: The Red Brown Alliance. Welcome to the Red Brown Alliance. I, I mean, I, I suppose
4: that, um, so after, I think it was actually after the leave vote, I ended up touring about Scotland, doing meetings, trying to meet, the the leave voters, the yes, uh, leave voters. Um, And I made this argument over and over again that no one was talking to these people, that that was a a foolish thing to do because it meant that we were losing some of our most vital parts of support. And, you know, I went to some meetings where some of the more kind of mainstream nationalists would actually, red in the face, get up and shout at you, you know, because you remember what it was like immediately after the, the vote you're a baby killer. Like, you know, I mean, people were saying things that were irrational, completely irrational. Um, And the sad thing to me was I would have people and they were often the ones I spoke to. And maybe these are some of the more kind of politically articulate uh, voters. They were usually people who were in the kind of old Labour, turned SNP. They would be a bit older, maybe in the kind of Tony Benz at a school, right? And they would walk up to me, having said nothing in the meeting, after the meetings and say, We agree with everything you just said why is everyone saying that we're racists which to me was kind of heartbreaking that it was Mm. older people as well saying it. it was sort of heartbreaking um so uh where do we fit in i mean i suppose we're trying to articulate an argument which to me is going to become completely essential i mean a few weeks ago i just said Um, And maybe it's a long shot, but I said, I think we're going to win the argument about the European Union um, in Scotland for for reasons we can maybe get on to, which is a bold statement, because if you look at the polls, uh, support for the European Union, of course, remains incredibly high. Um, But we're trying to push the argument, and I believe we'll have some success uh, on it, uh, on the merits, the intellectual merits of the case, um, that, apart from anything else, the demand for membership of the European Union will seriously undermine the case for Scottish independence. Seriously undermine the case for mm-hmm. Scottish independence. And the more people understand that, the more purchase we're going to have. Because I agree with what Kat said in terms of um, Scottish Scots are not instinctually liberal. They're not instinctually Europhiles. The national movement is not instinctively a Europhile movement. I mean, when Kat said, you know, Jim Sillers had to make it the case for this independence in Europe case, it was done very opportunistically. It was in the the 80s, the European Union, the modern EU was developing and they said, look, we can get around this argument or you're you're leaving this economic union to say, yeah, we're, we're leaving one union and we're joining another bigger economic union, which was always a slightly dishonest argument because The UK does, Scotland does, most of its traits was a UK and would under any circumstances. Um, But the point is that before that, Euroscepticism was not at all uncommon in the nationalist movement and in in the SNP even. Um, So people do sway around uh, on this issue. And fundamentally, the European question is not the main national question in Scotland. This is the other thing. I don't know that there's ever really much more you know, than room for one national question. In 2016, Scots who voted Remain did so because they were voting against the democratic deficit. So there's an obvious contradiction there. A future vote on Scotland's membership of the European Union will not be the same at all. Uh, It won't have that same conflict uh, arranged in the same same
1: way. So could you just break it down for us? Why is EU membership incompatible with national independence for Scotland?
4: So it's, it's if, if the, the, the SNP's case for independence at this point is a complete dog's dinner. And it's it's fascinating um, that, that the kind of contradictions that, that have emerged, because what the SNP leadership, and you have to distinguish the two things, because the SNP is led by a very secretive, centralised faction, uh, and they don't often agree with what the the conference floor of an SNP conference agrees with. it's very, it's a very undemocratic uh, and elitist organization and its structure. Um, but what the SNP leadership want to do is um, send uh, our monetary, monetary so- sovereignty to London because they want us to be part of sterlingisation, which means we would continue to use the pound, but without any access to monetary policy. We wouldn't have a central bank. You need a central bank to join. Um, the the European Union. The Growth Commission that Kat mentioned um, places six tests on setting up an independent currency. Those tests are actually mutually contradictory. You can't meet them all uh, and they're designed to stop Scotland achieving an independent uh, currency and therefore an independent central bank. You must have those things on the Maastricht to join the European Union. And then of course on top of that they want to (laughs) send off a foreign policy to Washington. They want Scotland to be a fully signed up member of NATO. So they want to basically exile Scotland's sovereign democratic rights variously to London, Brussels, Berlin, Washington. So they're a nationalist movement which is hostile, utterly hostile to, to democratic sovereignty, international democracy at the national level, completely hostile. Uh, and that's obviously a huge contradiction and it's going to cause them, it is causing them endless problems and, and, and will continue to do so. Um, but it's, it's the arch contradiction of you have a national movement that has come into hegemony and prominence because of, you know, the, the voids, Peter Mayer's voids, you know, the, 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 the traditional democratic structures and traditions have collapsed. They've moved into that void, but they just want to reproduce the void.
1: I suppose it's a, it's a hard question because I suppose it's it's so fundamental but how do you guys see the value then of sovereignty and national self-determination both I suppose specifically for Scotland but also as a general principle
3: I mean I feel I do feel like I'm at a slight advantage on some of the questions of sovereignty and self-determination like I've never necessarily identified myself as Scottish, I've never felt particularly Scottish. And that is partly because I come from an Irish background. So there's never been any question for me that socialism means sovereignty and self determination. Having an Irish heritage in Scotland means that you have kind of immediate access to a national popular tradition in the form of rebel Mm. songs, you know, family events and that sort of thing. So I've never really been tempted by that fashionable tendency on the left to just dismiss the questions. As irrelevant, it's quite a complicated um relationship that I have to, to Scottish identity. On the Scottish left, I think there's always been a bit of discomfort about our own national traditions because, unlike the Irish, we're we're not an oppressed people historically. Yeah. So there's no neat moral narrative there. Um, but I'll, I think it's important to remember that internationalism implies that there is a national level and that sovereignty isn't an absolute concept but something that's contested between different social forces um, yeah I mean I just I think that like for me that, that's kind of how I would how I would understand it um, yeah I mean the task I think for the left in Scotland is to try and separate like the good elements of popular sovereignty and our historic movements like the Red Clyde side the UCS the poll tax revolt um, separate that from Scotland's legacy of pretty bog standard Labour Party service delivery type politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, but, um, I,
1: yeah go on. Sorry. Um,
4: yeah, I mean, I, I think so. This, the Scottish national question, which we have to remember, and I, I think it's very often forgotten, like you, you almost hear this sometimes discussed outside of Scotland as though the Scots are a sort of bloody minded people. That's what Thatcher said. Who are always wanting independence this the demand for Scottish independence is very modern it basically didn't exist before 2012 not as a an element of mass consciousness or a mass movement there's always been a small pro-independence strain in Scottish society or has been since the sort of 1930s it was tiny then it gained a bit in the 70s and 80s but it's really exploded from about 2012 onwards and it is a direct response to the conditions of call it what you will the void, neoliberalism, the decline of social democracy. So Scottish independence is part of the stuff that is constantly discussed on this podcast. It's um, how the national question, as a democratic question, uh, has come to be a response to the hollowing out uh, of democracy, the very one-sided nature of the contemporary class war, uh, basically. So it could never have been a question for me to ignore the, um, I mean, from a very kind of like abstract, full Marxian standpoint, you got some people, you know, on the left who would say, how can you go along with this nationalism and all this kind of stuff, right? Just sort of aloof abstract uh, attitude to to politics because the independence question was confronting the fundamental, the democratic crisis that afflicts uh, modern uh, uh, capitalist society and is addressed by a whole series of different movements, some progressive, some quite reactionary, you know, but, you know, I mean, Scottish independence is very, very much a piece with everything that's going on like Brexit, the yellow vests, Catalonia, Greece, on and on and on and it needs to be viewed in in that context and in each of these contexts in different ways there's a struggle over the question of the situation of democratic life at a nation state level at which level you know it is inevitably situated.
3: I mean I just really wanted to try and get across um, just how exciting 2014 was so when David is talking about um, the the vote and how and what that meant and it being part of the uh, global populist moment and Scotland's happens in 2014 I just really wanted to emphasize that for listeners that might not be familiar with what happened in 2014 because I have no idea what that looks like from outside of Scotland because every single day I was either speaking at a meeting in a probably in a working class community and a minor's welfare or small town hall or a like hastily arranged rally or I was giving out leaflets or chapping doors and tower blocks, like the amount of activity that was going on and the amount of ordinary people who were engaged in that activity. Like it wasn't a like professional leftist astroturf campaign. It was, it was very grassroots. And the thing that always sticks with me about it and what I think is very similar to some of the, uh, the instincts around Brexit is that people felt for the first time in their lives that their vote was actually going to count. Because people in like, do you know what I mean, Glasgow, vote in Labour for 100 years and nothing changes, right? You still have some of the worst areas of deprivation. You still have some of the lowest life expectancies. You still have some of the highest unemployment rates. People have been voting Labour, Labour, Labour. The vote doesn't count. Get a Tory government. Vote for the SNP ones, doesn't matter. Get a Tory government. Scotland's mm-hmm. votes generally don't really change the colour of government. People at that point as well, when the referendum starts to be discussed, we're looking at Westminster, (laughs) And this is pre-Corbyn. And I always think, to me, like so much politics has happened in such a short period Mm -hmm. of time. So, so much has happened. It's pre-Corbyn. So we're looking at Tories who are, you know, ramping up austerity. You've got the Labour Party and people like Rachel Reeves saying we'll be tougher on welfare than the Tories and all that. Everyone's committed to Trident. Everyone wants like more nuclear weapons, the bigger the better. Mm-hmm. So there's people are sick of meaningless choices, genuinely sick of it, right? So you have really low voter turnouts and engagement and all of that stuff. And what happened was that I, I remember at one point feeling like the rest of the UK, I mean, I say that, I mean, particularly the sort of like London kind of liberal types are are kind of like looking and laughing at us everybody thinks this is a joke so did the so did the prime minister thought it was a joke thought it was a, a wee jokey vote no one's really going to turn up it's going to be like that av vote no one's really going to give a shit and they ignored it and ignored it and ignored it until the last three months where they had completely shat themselves. Sorry, (laughs) they had. And then there was suddenly this panic from the establishment. In the last three months of the Scottish independence referendum campaign, every headline, every news programme, every think tank, Barack Obama, the Queen, the European (laughs) Union, they're all coming out saying, if you vote for this, you'll lose your job, your home, your pension. You'll be in out of bins I don't know whatever fear story they could come up with and the I mean it was just constant 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 project fear and people voted for it anyway people voted Mm -hmm. for independence so 45% still voting like regardless of all of that scaremongering like there was a real sense of people expressing their agency Um. And that was the really powerful thing about it. I think there are some parallels there with Brexit. Oh, like, absolutely. it's an expression yeah. of agency. And I think all the fear mongering, like, no. so I was, I saw it, like all I, all my interactions with the EU referendum were all looking at what was happening in the English press. There wasn't a ca- campaign up here.
1: Yeah.
3: And I'm like, oh, this sound, this all sounds very familiar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny I mean, hearing just you say that, you cat, talk, like it, it was. It sounds oh, like
0: that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was going to say the same thing as Phil, really. It actually sounds like hearing Phil and George talk about Brexit and the EU, if you just remove the terms, I'd be like, yeah, well, that's it's about Brexit rather than Scottish independence. Um, I did want to ask something, and maybe to play slightly devil's advocate, but... Um, and, and also, to a certain extent, go against what David said, a point which I generally agree with about looking at politics from where you are um, and fighting for democracy rather than from some abstract point of view and some abstract recipe about what socialism is, and that means not being nationalist or something like that. Um, but they obviously you already mentioned Catalonia, um, Wales should maybe be brought in, the Basque Country um, and various other na- like national independence movements. Um, what is your position on that? I mean, how does that flow from your support for Scottish independence? Because I mean, I guess to put it uh, in a more critical way, the I would be concerned about national, you know, about fragmentation, if not quite balkanization, then the kind of breakup of multinational states. And I think multinational states are good insofar as it's, operates on a universalist principle that people of different types uh, can live together and uh, form a common polity um, based on a civic identity rather than any kind of more uh, essentialist one. And especially with the kind of growth of essentialism, uh, whether you see it in terms of identity politics or whatever, um, isn't there a risk with kind of national independence movement of breaking apart kind of, um, you know, a Spanish entity or a UK entity or something like that? I mean, I, um,
4: I think that's a good point. I think that's a, a valid worry. Um, I don't think you can just have a universal position on the national question. I don't think that that can be achieved, basically. I think you have to take each national case on its merit. So there are some national questions that are completely obvious, like, like Palestine, because it's a, a site of, you know, national oppression. Um, there are, you, you know, and that was traditionally the kind of nationalist movements uh, in the colonized world and, and so on. It's quite an obvious orientation that you would have on that from a, from a socialist standpoint. Um, but there are many European national questions that uh, are much more complicated. Um, so, for example, in Belgium, there are national questions mm. where the divisions are, sometimes are fueled by reactionary um, politics or ethnic politics or, or whatever. I mean, I don't I don't have a particularly strong analysis of South Tyrol, you know, for, for example. <laughs> there, there are as many national questions in Europe as there are countries. Um, which incidentally is one of the reasons why it was always strange that people thought that the European Union would support the breakup of some of Europe's most powerful nation states. You know, you get this idea that the, the European Union would somehow be a friend of the Catalan movement or of Scottish independence or whatever. There's an obvious reason why they will never support that, which is that it threatens to set off bombs all over the continent in terms of every powerful nation has its own internal national question. So no, I don't, I don't think you can abstractly extrapolate a whole theory for all these different sort of um, national movements. If there is a unifying position, though, it's defence for national self-determination. So in the case of Catalonia, for example, what must be totally obvious is that Uh, an authoritarian state cracking down on democratic rights uh, often in a very violent way arresting people for nonsense and all this kind of thing which is more generally part of the condition of the Spanish state it's not just about Catalonia Um, you know that obviously can be opposed on a much more uh, you know kind of uniform basis but yeah I don't necessarily think that a national independence movement is always the solution and always you know I don't know how I would have felt about Scottish independence at the time of, say, the 1926 general strike, where you had a unified Britain-wide working-class movement organised through steel and coal and the railways and they were all fighting together and so on. Like, um, at some level, support for for national independence has to be contingent on a wider body of factors. And you do, of course, more, more so in the third world, get a situation where sometimes you know, the the kind of the, the metropolitan centres of the system deliberately conspire to sow national divisions in order to exploit resources and so on. So, yeah, the, I don't think that you can simply establish a, a worldwide position that every small nation, you know, should become uh, independent.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
3: I would also say, like, I think that the example of Scottish independence not uniquely itself by nature of being Scottish independence, but only Scotland can sort of pull the starting gun on this. And that's the breakup of the British state. Like I think that Scotland pulling the starting gun on independence um, actually is probably one of the only options for true democratisation of like what is the British state. Um, I mean, I still see the United Kingdom as part of the project, a project of American imperialism in Europe, um, you know, uh, solidified and championed in the Blair years. Um, I don't see any uh, like I, I the questions of like NATO membership, um, of Trident, these these big things, the parts of the British state that you can't vote away, the lobbying, the House of Lords, all of that. Like I think that Scottish independence and that rupture provides a starting point for actual processes of democratization of the British state. I have this... a, I,
4: sorry, go on.
1: Philip. No,
3: you go on, David, go
1: on.
4: I, so I almost wanted to ask um, Philip or George in particular, perhaps because um, you are in the English national context. I don't know a lot about this question, but it seems to me that, like, uh, I think that England is one, you know, the the, the national unit within the UK well not necessarily the UK because Northern Ireland is obviously a a totally different kettle of fish but within Britain Scotland Wales and, and England I mean uh in Scotland and in Wales for example uh you know national traditions and institutions have been preserved as part of the um the UK constitution there's no real mirror of that in England I mean I think the English national question is quite extreme and I in terms of um, the lack of representation within england within england the problems of regionalization in england which are extremely acute i mean you know scotland is uh, is actually one of the wealthier parts of of the uk uh, obviously parts of like the midlands and the, and the north east and so on in england are grossly underserved democratically economically um all the all the rest of it and my assumption was and this is perhaps why brexit didn't have quite the same um even interest in scotland is that uh brexit was partly an attempt to answer the english question on on behalf of uh masses of of, uh, of english people so i'm kind of interested in that angle as well like i do i would hope uh that the scottish national question could be, be part of answering the english national question um yeah so that's just what i to take on
1: that it's a really good point, and I, I don't. I certainly wouldn't. I don't know about George. I certainly wouldn't disagree with you about the, um, you know, how important that kind of motor of um, English provincial and rural revolt against um, the southeast, the metropolitan southeast, was, as part of um, and the old Labour heartlands as part of the Brexit process. Um, I suppose we we'll, we can talk a, a bit more about it if um when we get to talk about um kind of what a federal a federal Britain might look like. But I wanted to push you both a little bit on this question. So Cat has made a very powerful case for Scottish independence and, and you have as well, David, with respect to how Scottish independence kind of um sets a light kind of the question of the English national question. Um, and and made the case for scottish independence as setting the firing gun on the breakup of this um kind of decrepit imperial structure that is the kind of the current uk um i suppose my question to you guys is though you had i mean you know we've just been talking about how much of this politics is driven as a revolt against westminster how can you be confident um that the that restore the scottish independence isn't a product of the void rather than a solution. So you've made the case about how, you know, it would kind of, um, it's a democratization and it is a way of renewing popular self-government in Scotland and particularly among all those voters and people who've been alienated from the central state in Westminster. But what if, what if you're just as trapped in the void as the current kind of political structures and that Scottish independence, how can you be confident Scottish independence is an escape from it?
4: You see, I, I think it's definitely both. It's be- definitely a both uh, a product and a, and a uh, response. I mean, again, this, my my feeling again with the the Scottish independence question is, from the outside looking in, you only see the extreme technocracy. You only see the anti politics of of Nicola Sturgeon, who's this extreme example of like an anti-politics figurehead. People just project onto her what they want, which is how she can support get Ghana mass support from working class populists and PNC liberal bedwells, and they're all projecting onto her precisely what they want from politics rather than what they're they're getting. So, clearly, there are dangers in that that scenario. But that, to me, is what the rebirth... I hope that with Brexit and Scottish independence and all these... and the yellow vests in France and all these other movements, we're seeing the rebirth of a democratic popular instinct in politics, and the birth agony of that will be highly contradictory and painful. Uh, And one of the things that it will produce is forces of this kind. I mean, in a sense, every anti-political figurehead has been the same. Trump was the same. Trump talked a great game about, you know, reindustrialization and make America great again. And he's going to make American heartlands. He's going to give America back to them and all this kind of stuff. Of course, in reality, he was a hollow, hollow man. Yeah. And that's, that's what you have with the, with the SNP as well. But I'm still confident that you can act on those contradictions and work on those contradictions to try and draw out the, uh, the the popular democratic attitudes. I mean, to make one point that I think needs to be made, because again, this might be totally invisible from outside of Scotland. Scotland, until the lockdown, had its largest social movement in its entire history. There were, you know, every other week, there was a mass demonstration in a Scottish town or city, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 100,000 people on pro-independence marches. Nicholas Sturgeon never set foot on one of those marches. She did get on a plane to London to march on the People's Vote March and take wow. a stupid-looking stupid selfie with, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Tony Blair's... Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell, his famous picture of Sturgeon with Alistair Campbell grinning like a moron. Um, that, I mean, that tells you everything. The SNP hate, on a level, the independence movement that has put them in power. And it's totally evident, which is the backdrop to how you can have this totally hegemonic party that wins every single election. But internally, it's an absolute benfire. It's constantly on fire. There's constant uh, conflicts between different factions and in in the party because it draws together these two different impulses Mm. uh, in a deeply, deeply contradictory way. That means that it's going to I mean, like I say, the, the, the case for independence is now so contradictory that. Independence isn't going to happen under this platform. It's too contradictory um, to work.
3: Yeah, is so, that car- is, is the the sort of group of people I described as the kind of anti-establishment dissidents, no. um, who are on those marches. Like, they're they're huge. It's much bigger than anything like the the anti-war movement. And we had huge demonstrations here. Um, And, I mean, not only has Nicola Sturgeon not been near them, I don't even think she mentioned them um, on her social media because Sturgeon Mm -hmm. has ultimately used the popular base of working class support for the SNP to pursue support among the class least likely to support independence. Um, namely the the PMC, Um, her politics is absolute centrist liberalism and her offer to Scotland is really to preserve that status quo against Westminster. She openly proclaims herself, of course, as a fangirl for people like Hillary Clinton. She's promoted layers of these young Turks who uh, increasingly epitomise the bland, HR-friendly PMC outlook of all Scotland's professional politicians. Um, yeah, sorry, that was,
1: that was a bit of a rant. No, no, but I mean, wonderful, I mean, and um, and I mean, I, you know, it's very interesting to hear you guys tell us from what it looks like on the inside, and you know, to saying, I mean, making clear that Nicola Sturgeon sees Hillary Clinton as a role model and has this kind yeah. of HR vision of the kinds of people that she promotes is wonderfully clarifying.
3: I think she plays this really interesting dual role because she presents to the middle class as a figure of continuity and she presents to the working class as a figure of rupture yeah. um, on the pro-independence part. So she's very good at playing this game of competency. Um, the SNP since 2016 have barely made a single policy achievement yeah. like during all that time. And to explain it away, they say, oh, it's Westminster's fault. And then they, they say, uh, oh, independence, it'll, it'll eventually happen. And when it happens, we'll make big changes then. But that, that's why Sturgeon succeeds where other kind of Clintonite centrist types fail, is that she's able to present to the middle class as this continuity, stable, house prices type figure. And mm. for the working class, you know, once we get independence, we'll, we'll do all those things that, that need to be done. Yeah. So, so I, I guess the there's a, yeah
2: go yeah on, there's there's an analog here obviously, well one of many with with Brexit around accountability and this obviously being one of the strongest arguments for Brexit being that it removes that kind of um the external constraints that domestic politicians choose to put themselves put on themselves and limit their kind of scope for. Uh, scope for action, which of course is just them uh, wanting to evade democratic uh, accountability um, at home. But I think one one thing which um, came out of I think some of, particularly some of the points that you were making, David, was what's the what's the the strongest argument against Scottish independence from from this point of view? Because I think you you know you both touched a little bit on how there's a kind of a nationalist movement which is at least partly hostile to national sovereignty wants to hand power out everywhere other than uh, than keeping it in Scotland I mean is this a is this a, um, a contingent factor or is this the the kind of the challenge that independents uh, or socialists in, in favor of independence are, are facing
4: I think um, to answer that lastly I mean I think um, I think it's a problem of political articulation. So um, there is a problem in that, look, I mean, the mood of the yes vote in, 20, in 2014 was very much take back control. It wasn't, people listening to this podcast will know that there are, you know, two souls of, of leftist politics. There's a tradition that sees um, popular democracy, mass democracy, mass self-activity on the part of the population as the route to social change. And there's a tradition of left-wing politics, very dominant today, which is kind of Fabian about kind of social engineering. It's faintly elitist. I think it's important to say that the version of left-wing politics um, that you would see in the housing schemes and so on in in, in 2014 was much more about they don't represent me. I want to say over my life. Um, It's that that classic stuff, the same stuff you saw reflected in in, in a lot of the, the, the Leave vote. The, the problem is, 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 a, is one of political articulation where that general feeling is raised to a level of, of programme, right? And we know that this is the, the general problem because um, there's that mood there, but the programme that it's supporting, at least at a Scottish election, is one which is extremely elitist, extremely technocratic, extremely about managing the population, indeed managing the, away the, the democratic rights of, of the people who are voting fundamentally for democracy, the voting fundamentally for control. So yes, there is a there is a lag in in um, where those aspirations meet with an actual practical political program that can fulfil them, and that it, you know is a serious problem. The, the the greatest argument against Scottish independence is the SNP leadership, um, and in 2014, a lot of us spent. A lot of time, and, and indeed, it was quite a general argument on the independence movement back then. The SNP was a small party; it only had about twenty-five thousand members. Um, we don't know how many members they have now because so many have le- left in, in recent years that they don't publish the figures anymore. Um, over these internal fights, um, but there was a time when the party membership reached something like one hundred and twenty thousand people, so that it was a significant proportion of, of the Scottish share uh, uh, population. But back then, you know, people would say, "Don't." Make this a referendum on the SNP because a lot of people don't like the SNP, and there are a lot of constituencies, including a lot of traditional working class constituencies, who traditionally don't like the SNP. For example, uh, the Irish diaspora traditionally don't like the SNP because it was traditionally a Presbyterian um, party. Um, so um, yeah, the,
2: the the current SNP leadership is is the best argument against um, independence. But is that sorry? Just to just to interject there because there's a there's a kind of a similarity with the old those old Lexit arguments, which were essentially the same sort of form. that's like the, the idea is good, but the people in charge are no, no bueno. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't do it. Absolutely, um, yeah. absolutely. I, so,
4: you know, I mean, we came up against the same stuff with Nigel Farage all the time. You know, when I said I was voting leave in 26, people were like, oh, you're, you're, you're friends with Nigel Farage now and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think you need to have the courage of your convictions. And what, what I said in 2016 was, I'm not fucking scared of Nigel Farage, right? If the left comes with a, it with a, from a position of popular democracy and it fights on that basis, we actually can beat Nigel Farage. He's not Hitler. Like, stop all this dumb this stuff. He's just a Tory boy who fell out with the Tory party because he's Eurosceptic. He can be beat, right? Nicola Sturgeon can be beat. Um, you know, these these people do not necessarily write the destiny uh, of of the future of the country. Not least because, and I think this is important to say, because there's an election in Scotland in a couple of months' time. There's not going to be an independence referendum in the short run. It's not an immediate prospect. And it's not an immediate prospect because of the utter mess that the SNP leadership has made of the prospectus. There's simply no way to progress towards independence when you have mutually exclusive headline economic (laughs) proposals for the independent country. So those contradictions will will become extremely tense in in the next few years. And it's a question of, organizing the agency as best you can to break through with those contradictions on the on the side of the, the popular Democratic argument
1: so be inter- I mean we'll I want to talk a bit more about those the contradictions of the economic program and what um, a what a kind of um, a viable um, independent Scotland looks like economically given like you say the kind of the complete mess of um, the SNP vision for it. But before that, I, I want to, I suppose, so if you cast it in terms of taking back control, I suppose this is my worry about Scottish independence is that it will make the project of taking control more difficult, um, which is to say enhancing self-rule and democratic power on this Island um, together um, because it risks dividing the English and the Scottish nations. And it seems to me if democratic power is enhanced by having more people engaged collectively, in the project of self-rule, um, dividing up that collectivity, making the relations between Scotland and England relations between, you know, international relations, um, it risks diluting that potential. And so as, as well as, you know, potentially risking future conflict and strife. And um, some of that, you know, some of that ugliness already came down in lockdown over, um, um, Eng- you know, English diseased kind of COVID carriers going up to Scotland and all of that. So I suppose you know, the question is, does that prospect of political fragmentation not cut against the socialist case for for fraternity and cooperation? I mean,
3: okay. this this just like I mean, I'm maybe um, I'm not following the argument properly, but this sounds like an argument for unity of the British working class. It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the problem would, is would that, that be easier if we're not separate countries. Why? Like so, from from my understanding, right? We are the the period of neoliberalism has systematically destroyed the the institutions of the British working class. Like so, we don't have the big British working class institutions that can operate as a block like that. Look at things like. Uh, the Labour Party or the trade union movement like they don't exist they exist in a version of nostalgia that, ha- that has been destroyed by neoliberalism right so no, we are wh- we are where we are part of one of the consequences of that has been this like break in Scottish consciousness where people are fed up of voting for the the same parties they see their agency as lying um, with them being able to vote for independence like that's a part of it so uh, I don't see why the working class needs to be unified in a British sense like I don't I don't have like any problems with the solidarity across borders I don't feel differently about people in the north of Ireland than I do in the south of Ireland in terms of the working class just because one's part of the, the UK and somewhere in the south So I do think that there's a danger in like engaging in a kind of nostalgia trip about the unity of the British working class. When we live in a country where solidarity is essentially illegal, we can barely take strike action unless you do all these, these things. And I don't really see a plan to get out of that. And it can't be around Brexit in Scotland. Like it's just not the moment and it's not the moment of consciousness and it's not the moment of democratic revolt.
1: So I mean I take all of those points. I suppose my worry is that Scottish independence risks reinforcing that. And I suppose you could say well it's a risk and it's a risk we're willing to take. Um but I my you know I suppose um I see the risk as higher that it would be normalizing and reinforcing that process of um the disintegration, political disintegration, rather than reestablishing the basis for a revival of popular democratic and working class politics.
3: I mean, no, I, think, think,
1: I think,
2: sorry,
3: sorry you go, George, no, it's okay.
2: No, I think, I think that's, that's the, the um, sort of major point about whether the, the drive toward whether, whether the kind of the, the breaking up and the fragmentation leads to decreasing possibility for, for taking control. For taking control of the democratic institutions that that um that currently exist, and whether independence in that context is essentially, I think as you were saying, Kat, is, a, is kind of a, a response to and a kind of um, deepening of or continuation of of some of these processes of of creating the void. But but David, I, I see you've got your very politely your, your hand up to, to come in.
4: I think there's a really important point to make in this, which is, I mean, what Philip just alluded to. I mean, it was actually quite a tiny and comical thing of people protesting on the border, English people driving, but it was also the Scottish government supported this, you know, uh, thing uh, under the lockdown conditions. But to me, the fragmentation, the national fragmentation of um, uh, Britain, um, is accelerated by the union. You know, I mean, that that's the basis on. You have a situation where. Nicola Sturgeon knows there's not going to be an independence referendum, but she's constantly dangling it like a carrot. But so is Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson constantly says there's going to be an independence referendum, and he knows there isn't. Um, Scottish Unionists, Unionists in, in Scotland, say there's they talk about nothing but Scottish independence. There is no other policy that they are going to have in the forthcoming election. So they only have, and and you know, under under the impact partly of. The Scottish independence question the Tory party has of course become much more concentrated in England it's not a Britain-wide party anymore so that fragmentation is already underway and in a sense it's accelerated by uh, the continuation of the union secondly it's content- continued by devolution and devolution has been a very double-edged sword to say the least in Scotland what devolution you saw this around the current um, you know, inquiry, the Scottish Parliament inquiry. Scotland's institutions have been, many of them, hideously weakened by the process of devolution. Middle-class professionals have fallen on the institutions of devolution like locusts uh, and ravished them. Um, uh, so, you know, you, you know, people sometimes refer to them as devocrats. You know, you have this kind of bureaucratic, technocratic layer who have emerged in Scotland who are highly managerial. You know, they're constantly pushing for alliances of trade unions and business owners and this kind of corporatism thing and so on. And my, my worry about federalism is that um, it would just be this process on steroids. You would just, it would become an instrument to degrade, to further degrade um, democratic institutions.
1: So you mentioned, David, this, um, your concern with federalism as a solution. Um, to the problems of British politics, and um, because you say um, what you say, this kind of this group of devocrats who've ravished um, the institutions of Scottish public life, but in a federal system that would be exacerbated. And just to put this into context for our listeners, so there's a lot of talk at the moment within within, particularly among the national parties, Labour and the Tories, of some kind of new federalized British union. When there's different models being proposed and some of these include a parliament for England. Currently there isn't, there is just the, um, the union parliament um, in London, which um, is at the same time the English parliament. Um, and so uh, one of the other models is to, so they, some people suggest an English parliament as well as then a federal parliament for the nations and that each nation would have greater autonomy in terms of revenue, raising powers and the like. And it would only be defense and foreign policy that would be concentrated at the federal level. Now, I mean, the details of all of these specific projects aside, would you guys be open in principle to a federal Britain? Is there some version of a federation that could potentially meet your socialist aspirations, Um, which is to say perhaps not immediately, but, you know, as a longer path, as well as perhaps meeting your concerns for greater national autonomy?
4: I mean, I, I doubt it, to be honest. I mean, you know, hypothetically, anything's possible. But what I see from demands for federalism. I mean, first of all, in Scotland, it doesn't exist as a question. The Scottish Labour Party, which is a rump party now, and as far as I can tell, um, it has, it's decisive. The, the Scottish Labour Party will probably never return to the role <coughs> that it once played in Scotland. They're the only people who talk about this federal option. And they do it in much the same way as a Trotsky a sect would. You know, like they've come up with this abstract programme, you know, a transitional programme and everyone else should agree with it. And they get very angry at people who don't agree with it. But it has no wider discussion in society. It's purely a product of Scottish Labour's um, bed on, on the national issue because they're frightened of either unionism or or, or independence in a straightforward um, way. And my my concern, as I said, is... Um, what kind of structures and what sort of social, social class elements administer these um, federal structures? And um, the late Neil Davidson, who, if any of your listeners, you know, really want to read anyone on Scotland, you could do a lot worse than uh, Neil Davidson, uh, who's a sort of Marxist who, who he wrote uh, an excellent book called um, uh, "Discovering the Scottish Revolution." Another one, uh, "The Origins of Scottish Nationhood." These are really good kind of textbooks for for understanding uh, Scottish history, um, but. You know, he, he said that the danger always was devolving the acts, that basically you have this long um, hierarchical structure of devolutionary processes. No one is fundamentally accountable. Everyone blames everyone else, and you have different little pockets of, man- of the managerial elite um, implementing cuts and removing democratic rights and, and all this kind of stuff. And all of them are just blaming each other, which is what's happening, of course, with, with devolution. The SNP get a- away with a huge amount. Simply on the basis that they are not Westminster and they are not in full control uh, of what goes on uh, in the country, and of course you get this in countries r- relating to the EU as well. The SNP never cease to say that we can't bail out this or that industry because of e- because of the EU, um, mm. and they did it right up to the day when we formally left. But of course they're still, <laughs> of course they're still doing it because they because they want back in the EU. They still have this pressure. Of 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 not using state aids that we now have the you know we have more levers more influence over because of regs and so on they they won't use it because they 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 are deferential to other layers of of management and administration and my fear would be that um, a federal Britain would become uh, another of those structures.
0: So actually, on that sort of question, because we haven't really talked about the economics of it, I guess, um, which is that uh, I mean, I always. Was struck by the notion that when people talk about Scottish independence but assume that it would remain within the EU or that Scotland would retain the sterling as a currency, it sounded to me like a pretty empty sort of independence that you'd be having if you can't set your own monetary policy and so on. Um, but there's other issues at stake as well. I mean, so, you know, unionists will argue that Britain subsidizes Scotland with social spending, um, which is actually a Thing that happens i guess in many other different areas where you know you have it sort of uh, with a, with Flanders and Belgium as well um and then on the other hand you have i guess scottish nationalists will make the point that if north sea oil is actually factored in and that there's a boom in renewable energy then then Scotland is viable on its own um where do you stand on this i mean and what is kind of Scott, what what would the makeup of Scotland's economy be in an independent state
4: yeah i mean um, this is a, a sort of <clears throat> strange conversation to have because these days and for the last couple of years, you've had to fight so many battles over just saying things like we should have our own currency <laughs> The other economic questions <laughs> are rarely come into it. I think, I mean, because you got the same thing over Brexit, right? you got, oh, we get so much money chucked at us from the European Union. How will we survive outside of this trading regime uh, and all this kind of stuff? The general point I would make, and I think everyone who's serious on the radical left needs to stick by is democracy is the fundamental question if you if you if you can if you can democratize society um then you can create you know a popular basis for a successful society and this isn't to say that there aren't serious problems right so for example um, obviously I'm trying to make an argument. We are trying to make an argument about Scottish independence and, and sovereignty, but we don't believe in sort of duchy in Northern Europe. Um, you know, <laughs> Scotland will still be conditioned All right, by
1: that, that, that is, that is, that is going to be the title of the, of the show. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, so, you know, and, and it still has, it has political and social and economic consequences that Scotland will still be connected to its large, largest trading partner, uh, in, in our UK. Um, You know, all of us have to have to struggle with the reality that we um, want democracy in a globalised world uh, and that there are contradictions there that we have to um, somehow meet. Um, But, you know, think of it like this. Throughout this crisis, the most astonishing thing has happened, which is at the height of it. um, The UK government put 10 million workers on furlough. Whatever um, criticisms people have of that furlough scheme and so on, a country that doesn't have its own central bank can't do that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff that is just not going on in the heads of um, supporters of the mainstream case, uh, the, 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 the leadership case, as it were, for, for Scottish independence. You'd have to knock on doors and say, remember that furlough scheme? We couldn't do that. Uh, if mm-hmm. you lack economic sovereignty on that basis, in, in the economic period that we're in and probably continuing to move into, you've got nothing. And all these arguments about kind of, you know, how are you going to make up for the lost trade and all that kind of stuff, they just don't compare to having the basic governmental and democratic structures that any, um, um, <clears throat> you know, independent state would require. And there are, but there are other, other problems. So, for example, and this is connected to the crisis, for example, of the Scottish, Scottish media uh, and the fact that the Scottish government's had to bail them out. Um, Scotland suffers from a problem of acute foreign ownership in its economy. So American influence is very strong in uh, in the in the Scottish economy, and that to me should also be addressed. That's also part of the independence debate. Yeah, uh, you have an economy completely dominated by uh, foreign uh, corporations, um, and once again, that means taking questions like a central bank, like state aid, and so on, seriously, um, which the SNP leadership routinely refused to do.
1: Yeah. So recently, there's been plenty of factional fighting in the ruling Scottish National Party between its current leader and Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and its former leader, Alex Salmond. Now, the details of the story are pretty involved and complex, and they've only recently broken onto the wider British national press. So this is a difficult thing because I've actually, I've not read anything which summarizes this effectively. So I'm going to give you guys the very challenging, um, the very, well, the challenge of if you can summarize what's happened but also explain what's at stake beneath the kind of you know the ins and outs and details of it
3: okay i'll absolutely try my best i did think about this before i came on um because as you say it is it's near impossible to get like a good summary of what's actually been happening in this giant car crash very slow moving car crash so as you said it's uh And there's a split emerged, very nasty and vicious split between Alex Salmond, um, who's probably one of the most significant figures in Scottish political history, or recent Scottish political history rather. Um, He's also the former mentor of Nicola Sturgeon, the current First Minister, as you said. And what has happened is that there has been a series of court battles between. Alex Salmond and the Scottish government first of all Alex Salmond suing them over a particular process and culminating in a criminal trial and the basis of that trial was Alex Salmond was accused of 14 charges of sexual assault he was accused of sexual harassment in the workplace which he had taken the government to court over a botched process and in that criminal trial which was kind of the nadir of the the whole thing he was acquitted on all charges and the scottish government um is then instructed to make a payout basically because of the botched process and yada yada so what what's then happened is there's, there's been an investigation committee set up and i don't know if you've had the joy of watching any of our wonderful investigation committee no you haven't so there's been a really painful drawn out Committee investigating this whole affair, well, particularly the way that the complaints of sexual harassment against Alex Salmon were handled. So Nicholas Sturgeon has been has had to give evidence. Alex Salmon's given evidence. Nicholas Sturgeon's husband, who's the chief executive of the SNP, has also given evidence, and the permanent secretary has given evidence. So you know, there's there's so much coming out of it about evidence that's been hidden. Uh, Alex Salmond is claiming conspiracy. Nicola Sturgeon is um, very much um, using, I would say, like aspects of Me Too and things like that to to make her case. Um, I think she's an incredibly skilled politician because half the journalists in Scotland were duped by the fact that she's genuinely empathetic. Um, Which, I mean, that's big alarm bells for me. Um, But why this matters, right, I think, is because the SNP have presented themselves and the Scottish Parliament and Scottish institutions as truly better, as superior to them down there in Westminster. And what's happening is that is... Very quickly unraveling, and it's starting to show in the polls for May's election. So I remember the last leaflet that went out in 2014 from the official SMP Yes Scotland campaign for independence. And on it, it had the it had Big Ben snapping into. It, it did look like it was from the Social Workers' Party. Big Ben snapping two, <laughs> and it said. They lied about weapons of mass destruction. They lied about expenses. They lied about Scotland's oil. What else are they lying about? So there was this whole thing about like Westminster is full of cheats and liars. It's corrupt. It's rotten to the core. That's why we need independence because Scottish institutions are, they're pure and superior and really democratic. And actually this process is taking a really black and white moral assertion about Scotland um, and showing that there's much more of a grey area. And I think that you know there's one particular reason that some people might think um the independence, you know, as a as a movement is potentially threatened by this whole thing.
2: So just to to follow up on that a little bit, the um, do, the, do the two pro- protagonists represent, so Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon, represent different political factions within the SNP or or wider Scottish society, or is it just a bit of kind of um, sub-house-of-cards political intrigue? I suppose, um, I no, I mean, it's Salmond and Sturgeon
4: represent basically the same leading faction uh, of the SNP, but underneath that, some of the kind of populist element has latched on Salmon's case. So every single issue in the SNP becomes an item of shadow boxing. So whether it's the Salmon and Sludgeon split or the GRA reform or the hate crime bill, which has just passed, you know, all these sorts of issues um, are latched onto by various actors who want to fight over a much more general but vague feeling that we're not moving towards independence and there's impatience in parts of the movement about that um, situation. So no, I mean it they, they have very similar politics. There are one or two interesting differences between them. But basically, um, you know, Salmond laid down all the markers that Studgeon has followed. If anything, Studgeon's a bit more technocratic and robotic. But apart from that, there's not a, there's not a serious programmatic difference between them. With, At with least she's not being
3: called a sex pest by her own lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so how far, David, is it
1: legitimate to characterize Scotland as a one-party state? Um, And would it be fair to say its institutions and public life have been captured by the SNP? I mean, this claim is heard frequently or with increasing frequency now south of the border. It's also been very powerfully made by Andrew Neil, who we've already mentioned, uh, the Scottish journalist and also editor of the Conservative magazine, The Spectator.
4: Yeah, I mean, a, a one-party state, obviously, um, you know, a pedant would very quickly just say a one-party state is um, a state in which only one party is allowed. It's not really the SNP. You know, you can blame many, many things on the SNP, but not the utter shitness of the opposition parties, uh, which are truly terrible. In fact, the, the greatest sense in which Scotland is a, is a one-party state is just that it's a sort of liberal one-party state in that you have five parties in the Scottish Parliament and they all are basically socially and economically liberal. With the odd bit here or there a difference, all the press share a very common liberal uh, consensus. Um, so it's easy to see how the constitutional question has become such a divisive issue uh, in, in, in Scottish politics because of the just unanimity uh, of everything else. But there is a serious problem in the institutional life of uh, the Scottish state or rather the Scottish society's Scottish state is part of the British state. Um, so you have a situation where the SNP having been in power for 14 years and no one can lay a glove on them has been um, corrosive in that um, the Scottish government is, even by the standards of uh, Western kind of liberal democracies and the decline that they've all experienced in the last 30 or 40 years, incredibly opaque, over-centralised, um, as Kat said, the he- the leader of the party, the-, the governing party is the husband of the leader of the government, for example, the, the-, the inner circle of the government uh, of- of- and the SNP, it's three or four people um, and everyone else is, you know, uh, kept in the dark. On, on on major issues uh, the snp as a party itself has little to no internal democracy uh, when when policies are, are passed the local branches and submitted to the conference there's a, there a committee that just throws them out if they're considered too controversial um, so and that and that has that has bred out in concentric circles into various other institutions the scottish government and this is how devolution works runs a kind of patronage model um, you know a lot of things are obviously de- dependent on the funds that Scotland gets from the, the British state then those are handed out to friends basically. So you've created a perfect breeding ground for you know a very narrow and limited democratic um, sphere. I mean this situation is now so extreme um, because for example, all the Scottish major Scottish newspapers are funded by the state because they don't function anymore on a, on a commercial basis. Um, mm-hmm. so you, you have a situation where, during Nicholas Sturgeon's um, uh, evidence to the inquiry, the Scottish government, uh, the, the, the justice minister was live tweeting the entire thing. And then you had Scottish journalists tweeting about how great Nicola Sturgeon is. And these are supposed to be, this is like the unionist press. <laughs> this is the other thing, the, the unionist establishment in Scotland, parts of it, they love Nicola Sturgeon. Um, which, you know, tells you a thing or two about who about who this was, and hate her opponents. So, for example, just to, to return to how savage the internal factional struggles in, in the independence movement are, um, the leadership of the SNP, the leading faction, frequently accuses the movement of being um under the influence of Russia. Um, this is a constant <laughs> thing. So I so for example, the SNP played an important role in the Westminster committee that accused Brexit of being a, a Trojan horse for Russian influence. And, and then during that report, and it's not just Brexit, Scottish independence is also a Trojan horse for Russian influence. Um, and of course, the, the, these journalists just gobble up these lines. They hate the independence movement, constantly accuse them of being assets for Russia, or as I saw today, Iran, I don't know what the Khomeiniites have <laughs> in play in Scotland, but <clears throat> so
1: Presumably Russia- and, George Galloway.
4: Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <go>. um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's it's an extremely peculiar situation uh, in Scottish society where, it, you know, there are very few moving parts of the Scottish middle class that are not in this kind of relationship with the central government. Um, and I mean, some of the opaqueness in the government is utterly ridiculous. The, the, famously, Nicholas Sturgeon and her colleagues never write anything down. So, because there's have such a secretive culture in the party for so long. Um, so, for example, we don't have, there's no paper trail in Scotland as to how lockdown conditions were arrived at. There's no official written advice from the chief medical officer or anyone. Insane. Past.
2: That's, it's in, that's insane. What's what's the rationale for that? I I heard Little Wayne doesn't write his lyrics down because he doesn't have time and he can remember them. But what's the what what's the rationale for them not writing anything down? That's they they really don't
4: weird. they don't the journalists I mean I mean they don't supply one. They just keep their mouth shut. So like, the, the, there's no explanation as to why nothing's ever written down. So we we have no paper trail that explains to us how we ended up in lockdown or, or how specific decisions were taken or any of this kind of stuff. There were just meetings between the First Minister and the Chief Medical Officer and a few other bureaucrats in which they discussed all this stuff but didn't write anything down. There's no submitted advice or anything like that. And that's a big problem because the Scottish in the Scottish care homes, I mean, this is a much bigger scandal than in anything else that's animate, animating Scottish politics at this point, was atrocious, the death rate in Scottish care homes. But we have no idea what precautions were taken or not taken or whatever. So there's a fundamental problem with democracy when the government simply doesn't record its decision-making processes.
1: It's been fantastic, really wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. No, I've
3: actually uh, I enjoyed myself.
4: Thanks very much. And, um, you know, thanks for letting us, you know, contribute to this project because I think this podcast is really important in exploring. I mean, what we've been discussing is in, in some sense is very similar questions, just in different national contexts um, that mm. this podcast has explored, you know, over so many episodes. So, yeah, it's exciting to bring, you know, a little bit of that uh, analysis into that picture.
0: That's great, and we'll have to have you guys back on uh, to check in once uh, when things kind of really heat up. So, <laughs> all right, that's it from us for today. Uh, catch you later. Bye bye. Sorry, I kind <laughs> of butted in. No, no, it's alright. <laughs> it's <fine>. it's, <laughs> it's shite
1: being Scottish, with the lowest of the law, the scum of the fucking earth, the most wretched, miserable, servile, pathetic trash that was ever shot into civilization. Some people hate the English, I don't, they're just wankers. We on the other hand are colonized by wankers. Can't even find a decent culture to be colonized by. We're ruled by a few assholes.